Well, tonight we're going to talk about how to deal with fear. Uh, one of the amazing things that we are observing in the book of Ezra is that you are seeing courageous people choosing to leave essentially what they've always known, their home, their lives, their livelihood, uh, to leave that Babylonian area and to return to the area of Jerusalem uh, because Cyrus has given a decree that they can go and worship their God and they are to build a temple to the Lord. And so we are told that we have a, a group of people who have returned for that very purpose. And, and chapter three sets up a, an interesting situation. The situation is going to happen a lot where the people are going to be afraid. They're going to be afraid of the surrounding people. They're going to be afraid of the people who live in the area as well as the, the, the surrounding nations and how they deal with that fear as they go about the work of this new beginning to rebuild and to be renewed and to restore the work that God has called them to do, I think is extremely important and helpful to us as we consider then how to be fearless as we go about serving God. Um, in, in talking about handling fear in this section, in Ezra chapter 3, it tells us in verse 1 that it's the seventh month. And uh, the seventh month is an important month in Israel's heritage in history. The seventh month is when you had the Day of Atonement and you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those feasts not only commemorating God making atonement for the people and covering over their sins, but these are festivals that were reminders about how they were slaves in Egypt and God had brought them out by a mighty hand. And you can imagine the parallelism as God has now brought them out of Babylonian slavery by a mighty hand and has now set them in Jerusalem, preparing them for the work that is at hand. The seventh month is also important and would be significant at this moment because it's in the seventh month that Solomon's temple was completed and you had the dedication that was given by Solomon as this grand temple had now been completed and the praises to God in 1 Kings 8 about that and what that meant about God being with his people and the forgiveness of sins and relationship that existed. So when we open up and we see in this first verse that it's the seventh month, that's a very rich statement about the, the, the kind of imagery of what is happening at this time as it parallels uh, to the Day of Atonement and reminds them of the temple that Solomon had built. And yet at the same time, we don't have a temple yet. We are coming back and attempting to restore worship back to God. And I want us to notice the first thing that they do as they prepare now uh, to go about serving God and restoring worship is in verse 3 it says, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. I find this statement really interesting is that they come back to the land, they get their houses set up and so we're now ready to start working on the temple and it tells us that the first thing they need to do is they need to get an altar. And it says that they built the altar for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. It sounds a little bit strange when you read it like that. So strange that even some translations change the word for and go, they set the altar in its place despite the fear that was on the people. But 
There is a picture that's being given here that I think is important. And that is their response to the fear of the surrounding people and the threats that they were experiencing at that time is the reason why they put the altar in place and begin to worship God and offer up their burnt offerings and their sacrifices is they understood all the more that they needed to seek God's favor. In fact, burnt offerings were that very thing as you were asking God for forgiveness and you were putting yourself in right relationship with God as you offer this up before him. And you have a picture here of the people understanding that in the face of fear, what we need is more of God and Particularly what we need is greater worship and more worship of God. This this is how they are going to seek the Lord's favor. I wish that more people had an understanding of this idea about worship. Because unfortunately it is sad to me that worship or church has been pretty much defined as Going somewhere, doing certain activities, and then going on your merry way because those things were commanded and thus here is our obligation. And if we don't appease the God in heaven by doing certain acts of worship and getting those things knocked out, you know, then we're all going to be in trouble. We often look at worship as something that's obligatory and perfunctory and something that just has to be done. And I want you to see that that's not how true worshipers of God look at worship. They look at worship as a means of imploring God's favor. That's why they want to worship. That's why they build the altar. That's why they're making their sacrifices. And that's what they are attempting to get before God is that when they are afraid, they're going to worship. When things are hard, they're going to worship. When the times are dark, they're going to go and worship. When it's time to get their lives restarted in this new land, new beginning, going to get things going in the right direction, they go to worship. That is their vision of what worship looks like to them. They don't treat worship as something that has to be done, but a way to access God, a way to implore the blessings of God and saying to God, We're afraid and we want to do the work. And so, God, we are giving you our worship and our offerings so that you will look kindly upon us and bless us and help us in that effort. That is so much more what the idea of worship is about and how we are to handle fear is so often when we are afraid, we run from God. When God is saying, when you're afraid, worship me, come to me, implore me, seek me. And you think about how that's so true in the scriptures, how often God is telling his people, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to carry you through this. I'm making promises to you. And that all the more is supposed to generate that worship to God, that God is with us. And I need to get closer to him in the times of fear, in the times of darkness, in the times of difficulty. That is what God is looking for us to do. And so often what we have done with essentially church is turn it into a selfish pursuit where it's, well, what do I get out of it? Did I get something useful to me? Did it mean something to me? Rather than looking at it as the opportunity to talk to God, to implore God, to seek his favor 
and to seek what you need in your life as you go into your next day. And that's the picture which you see happening here with these people. And so rather than retreating from God or retreating for worship because they are afraid, no, the fear drives them to God and drives them to worship. And that carries through the majority of this chapter. One of the things that I think is interesting to observe in these 10 verses is that these people are very interested in worshiping in the way that God wants. You will notice in chapter 3 and in verse 2, it says that they made the burnt offerings as was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, I'd love to do a whole sidetrack on, isn't it interesting saying Moses, the man of God? We don't have time for that. But notice why how they're worshiping. Exactly as the law of Moses said. Verse 4 does the same thing where it says that they kept these, offered these burnt offerings according to the rule that is prescribed. Verse 5, it says that they are keeping all the feasts that God had asked them to keep. In verse 10, it says they praise the Lord according to the directions of David. Over and over again, this chapter is emphasizing now that the altar is in place, they are seeking God's way. And I want us to consider why that would make sense, why that would only make sense, is if our worship is a way of coming to God and imploring God to show his favor, to show blessings upon us, to grant us success and to help us, then wouldn't it only make sense then to do the worship the way he asks? If the whole point is me imploring God's will and seeking his blessings and seeking his favor and getting success and help from him, then shouldn't I be going to him the way that he wants since I want his help? Uh, to put it a, a, in another way, as I was thinking about this, everything boils down to parenting anymore in my mind now that I've traverse nearly the the sequence of events now and <laughs> through through all of this but if my kids come to me and ask me for help and I show them a particular way to do that and they completely ignore everything that I said then why do you even bother coming to me if you want to do it your own way you go right ahead don't bring me into that <laughs> either you're going to do it the way I'm prescribing to you or don't bother it makes perfect sense. If we're wanting God's favor and God's blessing and God's help and God's success, should we not then seek the way that he wants us to go about it? It makes no sense to want his help and success and aid and then go, well, you know, but I'm just going to kind of go my own path over here about how I want to do that. That's not going to work. And so the people of in Ezra's day understand this, is that since worship is about seeking the Lord and seeking his favor, then we need to seek the way that he wants us to do that. That if we're going to do that, we need to then look for it to be from God's direction and God's way. And I think that's an, an important picture for us because... If we want a relationship with him, and if we really want God's help, then we need to want to listen to what he has to say. And it's just interesting, we live in a time that has just simply no regard for the way God said to do anything, but oh, we want God's blessings and we want God's help, which makes just no sense whatsoever. If you really want that, then listen to what he says about what to do in regards to that. Those two must come together. Well, I think this is a, a key point 
to consider in our study because what you see with these people, I think, is impressive because they did not sit back and decide that they get to determine how to worship. I mean, you think about it, they're coming back to Jerusalem. It's a full restart. There's nothing there. There's no altars. There's no temple. There's no walls. There's no nothing. And I want you to think about how they perceive all this. They do not look back at it and go, well, I guess since we don't have any of this stuff, we'll just go about doing it however we feel like and we get to determine it. No, they go about with the altar and they do these offerings just as the law of Moses prescribed. By the way, the law of Moses prescribing those things was probably a good thousand years earlier at this point. You'd say that's old and antiquated and, you know, really outdated and ancient. And they went right back to exactly what Moses had said, what David had said, and did things exactly as they were told to do. And so that's, I think, an important picture about being fearless, is fearless is about worshiping God, coming to him and worshiping, and then seeking him the way that he wants us to seek him, to come after him in the way that he calls us to come after him. Now, I want you to notice how... This all plays out. You'll notice in verse 8, we come now to the second year, and after they're coming to the house of, of God in Jerusalem, it's the second month, and we have the leaders here who are all coming together as they're making preparations to do the work uh, for, for the temple. And I want you to notice then what we read in verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. I want you just to see this excitement in the people as the the foundation is completed in verse 10. And notice that they sing responsively to God for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. For Israel or toward Israel. It is singing the words of, of Psalm 100, which gives the very content of those things as they proclaim the goodness of God. They are proclaiming the steadfast love of God and responding in that kind of worship. And I think this is important to consider as well. When the foundation of the temple is laid, they do not look at each other, do a high five, and go, We did a really great job around here. You know, we are master builders. They do not go, you know, we were the only ones who had the guts to be able to come here and accomplish this. I want you to see that they are recognizing that God made it possible. When the foundation of the temple is complete and it immediately turns to God, praising God, his steadfast love endures for us. This shows that God is with us and he has helped us and brought us this success. So they began by in fear, coming to God, praising and worshiping, seeking God's favor. And as they continue to do the work, we see the outcome, the foundation is laid. And they're thanking God and saying, it's because of you, God, not because of us. It's because of your faithfulness, not because of us. Which again is what worship is about. Worship is responsive. Worship is observing what God has done and saying to him, 
You have been faithful to me. You have done great things in my life. You have accomplished great salvation. Look at your love and mercy. And that is what you see these people doing is understanding that we need to respond to God with worship. It really gives a catalyst to what worship is about. Again, not just, well, you know, there's... There's God in heaven and, you know, it's Sunday again. So I guess we got to drag ourselves out of bed because otherwise God's going to be unhappy. Rather, it's I want to respond to him. I want to give him. I want to, to, to proclaim him because of what he's accomplished. And so they come to this great moment in their history with the foundation of the temple laid and they respond in worship. But something unusual happens, perhaps. Verse 12, after telling us in verse 11 that everybody, all the people shouted a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12 says, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. I want you to consider what is happening now at this moment, because it's a curious scene. You you seem to have in this final picture of this chapter, this This mixed response that happens where it's showing the younger people are just praising God, overwhelmed with joy. And then you will notice that there is this this older generation and it says that they are weeping and they are wailing about all of this. And I want us to think about this scene for a minute because it's a curious scene before us. A lot of people have come to this text and are highly critical of the older generation. (laughs) You know, this should have been a time of joy. The young people are shouting for joy. The temple, the foundation is laid. And here are these older generation people. and They're just being a wet blanket upon all of this. And they should have been praising God too. And you're always going to have those people out there who are always, you know, sour, even though they should be praising. I don't think that's the point of this text. It doesn't seem to bear that out in this. Some will suggest that the reason for the weeping is because they're looking at this structure and are not observing that the glory is the same as as before. I don't think that's it either. While Haggai talks about the glory of the temple, that's 16 years later and not right here. So I don't think that they're looking at that, never mind, that the footprint that we read about appears to be the same footprint. So we don't have a different size of footprint in terms of these structures. And so some will say, well, you know, what they're doing is uh, they're, they're, they're condemned because of what the, they're not, you know, joyful in all of this. Nothing negative is said about these, this older generation. And so I think what you probably have happening here and why the text speaks to The younger are praising and yet the older are weeping. But please note that you have in verse 11 where it says everyone is singing responsively. Everyone is giving thanks. Everyone is saying for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The people are all shouting with a great shout. Yet I think there's two perspectives that are coming to this moment. 
And I think the older generation have a, a place for weeping because they're able to remember the way things used to be. Not that there's a sadness of, you know, oh, this is terrible, that things aren't what they used to be, but to be able to think back of what they used to have when they were in the land and the temple was there and the relationship that they had with God. And now all of that is lost. And now we're having to do it all over again. The younger people don't have that frame of reference. They've been in Babylon the whole time. This is all exciting. This is all new. Everything in their life, this has all been a story to them about the way things used to be. And now they're able to come back and get restarted. Why would there be any sadness on their part? But to the older generation who's experienced the way things used to be, you're able to come in touch with what you have lost. And now to restart and try to get back to where you were before. I think all of us, have gone through something like that in life where um, you ever been so overwhelmed in your life about something that you've lost and then you've been able to regain it and the joy of tears kind of happens or someone you haven't been around for a very long time and you're able to see them again and you are joyful and yet you are weeping and wailing. By the way, Remember, in their culture, weeping was not how we weep. We all like to silently in a corner, you know, shed our tears. And you always read about them wailing and weeping and making making noise about that. If you were weeping in that day and time, you didn't do it quietly. And so that's why you would hear their shouting and their wailing that, that, that is going on. I think what is happening here is really a description of the contrasting nature of worship. Here God has come back to be with his people and it's hitting the two generations differently uh, about what that means. And let me bring that into our own time and maybe this will help, I think, communicate what I think is happening here in Ezra 3. There are times where you probably come to the table and you come to the memorial of Christ and you are terribly upset saddened, emotional, as you think about the cross, the sacrifice, the the awful nature of what Jesus endured, what he experienced, when you read about the mocking, the spitting, the mistreatment, the nails, all of that can move you to a place where you are just absolutely saddened. Does that mean if somebody else is in the room who is also remembering Jesus and who is very happy and excited about atonement and forgiveness of sins and the new life they now have is completely wrong because they are joyful? Or is the one who is sad completely wrong because they are sad? Both are correct. There are times when you are filled with great joy when you come to Christ and you think about what he's done and you remember what what has happened. And it is an amazing moment of forgiveness of sins and eternity and reconciliation and relationship and all that we have in him. And then give it another Sunday and you come and it's just, it breaks your heart and you're, you're broken by it. And you think about, wow, this is unbelievable how uh, I have caused this because of my sins. And, and I need the, the, the cross to happen as the death of Christ because of my own, own, own error and my own fault. I think that's what's happening here. 
that as the foundation of the temple is laid, the younger people who don't have that contact with the way things used to be are overwhelmed with joy, and rightfully so. And the older generation who remember walking this land and who were part of the reason why the temple was destroyed are now back on the land and they're remembering what had happened and why it happened. And it strikes them a different way and that neither are incorrect, but it's the contrasting nature of worship. And I think there's something powerful about that. And I hope it'd be something that we would always think about when we even are remembering the death of our Lord is that there are some times where it is wonderful where we are coming together and what we are doing is just striking the chord of emotion of just stunning hurt to think about the sacrifice. And then other times we can come to the table and go, like we were able to do this morning, look at the hope that we have. Look at what was accomplished for us. Look at this great place that we stand because we've been justified. And that, that is the intent, I think, of the memorial is to be able to have both of those emotions fully coming to us. And some days it'll hit us one way and some days it'll hit us another way. But I was found it curious to come to this paragraph and so much is made about this older generation who are weeping and then the younger generation who are joyful and how you can't tell the difference and they're all shouting, and, well, who, who's right and who's wrong? Uh, that's the way worship looks like. True worship that is moved from the heart was sometimes going to hit from great joy and sometimes hit from great sadness. All right, let's pull this lesson together as we talk about being fearless then and what this worship sequence all looks like. Because I'm amazed that God uses this as another remedy for our fears, for our consideration as we think about how we deal with difficult times. That we would look at worship as an answer, as an answer to fear. That we would use worship as an answer to difficulty we would use worship as a way to deal with dark times. And I hope that we would even think about the aspects of our coming together as a way to call upon God. That if when we're, our prayers are not, you know, a sermon to each other about things that we already know, but a prayer is imploring God. You know, prayer isn't about stating what we know is truth. This is our moment to talk to God. And, and I'm not preaching at God. He doesn't need my sermon. I'm imploring him and I'm thanking him and I'm asking for his favor and I'm asking for his help that prayer would be utilized in that way because we see worship as a way to come to God in that way. Our songs do the same thing. Our singing is not just feel good, you know, like, oh, you know, that, that made me feel good today. I like those songs. Those are my favorite songs. And so it warms my heart and I feel good. That's not the point of what the singing is about. But here again, the words that we say to one another, not only encouraging one another, but an imploring of God. So many of those songs are prayer like songs of what we are saying. And so we're able to encourage one another with the truths that are in them as well as implore God and seek God's help and seek God's favor as we sing about the great things God has done or the great things that we look forward to. And I'll say that even about our Bible studies and even sermons. Is that the point's not information. 
It's not about, you know, an academic pursuit. Now, you know, Ezekiel 3, extra star on your crown, you know, more brownie buttons for you. Uh, That's not the point. But again, the idea that this would encourage you to implore God, to seek him all the more, to call out to him, that that's what all of our work is to do. Every aspect of worship is centered upon imploring God and calling out to him and seeking him and asking for his favor, asking for his help and proclaiming our thanks and our praise to him for all that that he's done. So these are are beautiful pictures of what they're doing that are true for us. And not only are these ideas true for us, I want to bring you back to verse 11 to conclude because verse 11 is a wonderful promise that isn't just held in the Old Testament for the people who are living in 536 BC and, and they said these words and they're true to them, but they are true to us. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And sometimes we can read something like that and go, see, well, that excludes me. And I've been trying to work hard with our studies and our Bible classes and our even Matthew series to understand that you understand that Jesus comes along and says, I'm the true Israel. I'm the true vine. And if you belong to me, you belong to the new Israel. You are the people of God. You are enjoying the promises. You are enjoying the blessings. This promise is to each and every one of us. God is good and his steadfast love endures forever toward his people. His steadfast love endures forever toward you. And in your times of fear and in your times of difficulty and in your times when you don't know what to do, that we are able to have the faith in the face of fear to rise up and do the work because we know this glorious truth. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward his people. And that should carry us through whatever difficulty we face, whatever fear we experience from others, that we would make this promise ultimately real to you and to me in our lives again and again, and to use worship as the tool for accomplishing that praise and that imploring of God. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are an amazing God. And Lord, we are able to think about in our lives how true it is that you are good and your steadfast love has endured over and over and over again toward us. And God, we thank you so much that you are with us in our fears, that you do not condemn us when we feel weak or ashamed. And we thank you that you are with us every step of the way, no matter the difficulty. And Lord, we pray that in our times of fear that you would help us to know that you are there with us. Lord, give us the strength that we need. Give us the direction that we need to make the proper decisions towards you as life troubles come at us. 
Help us to make the right decisions when we fall into trials. Help us to make the right decisions when we are in temptations. And Lord, I pray that it would always be in our hearts that we would generate our praise and our song and our worship to you for all that you do for us. Lord, we need your help. We need your strength. We need your forgiveness. And we need your direction. And Lord, we pray that you would give those things to us in these days ahead. As all of us face a variety of difficulties as we walk into this new week, give us the strength that we need so that we can reflect who you are to the world. Help us to shine as you want us to shine and help us represent you in the world as you would want us to do. And God, please forgive us for how often we have thought about our worship to you as something as obligatory rather than something that we would desire. Forgive us for how often we fail to realize how important it is to center our lives around you. And Lord, help us to remember that you gave us worship so that we would be able to seek you with all of our heart and that you could respond to us with favor and blessing. So thank you for these avenues. Thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to sing an invitation song now this evening. We can help you come to Jesus in any way to turn away from sin and seek him with all of your heart. That that's what you would do in any of your difficulties, in any of your fears, to come to him. He will be there to help you through. Can we help you tonight? Won't you come while we stand in the